Welcome to episode 55 of History Does You. Today we'll be talking about the road to the American Revolution, specifically focusing on the events of 1774, which was a landmark year and the year right before open hostility started before the American Revolutionaries and the British Empire. And as I think a really pivotal moment, not just in American history as the birth year of the nation, but also as a kind of switch to a revolution to promote democracy, structure government around certain values rather than monarchs or single rulers. And you can certainly criticize that it was not inclusive enough or certainly did not encompass what the founders idealism that went into the constitution, but it was the start. And I think laid the foundations for a lot of different democratic changes that would follow, not just in the United States, but across the globe. The French Revolution, for example, that followed only a few years later, sort of followed this idealist trying to take back power from a certain group of people. But again, I think it's a very complicated time and a very complex event. I think, again, most people associate the American Revolution as everyone working together. And it wasn't really all that. It was a very early on, especially in 1774, for example, which was the first year that they had a traditional Congress, congressional meeting. It wasn't, not all the states even sent representatives. You had different states who had different visions. Even in the years after the revolution, when the U.S. officially gained independence, there were numerous political fights over what the U.S. government would actually do between different factions, whether it was the Federalists or anything like that. So it's a really complicated time. I can't say that I'm by no means an expert. I've certainly read about it, but still learning a lot, especially about the politics, the military history, the social, the economic. It was a really interesting time in colonial America. So I hope you enjoyed the interview and sort of, again, we focus specifically on 1774 as the year that the revolution really starts. On today's episode, we welcome Dr. Mary Beth Norton. She's an American historian specializing in American colonial history and is well known for her work on women's history and the Salem witch trials. She's the Mary Donlin Professor Emeritus of American History at Cornell University. She was elected as president-elect of American Historical Association in the summer of 2016. She served as president-elect during 2017 and as president in 2018. She's written numerous books, including Founding Mothers and Fathers, which was a finalist for the 1997 Pulitzer Prize in History. She also recently wrote 1774, The Long Year of Revolution, which was a Wall Street Journal Best Book of the Year. So welcome on. Thank you. Nice to talk to you and your listeners. And just to start, what is your favorite subject of history to research and talk about? Why is your favorite? And how did you originally become interested in American colonial history? My favorite subject is obviously American colonial history, since that's what I do write about. I became interested only in graduate school. However, I was not interested in it when I was an undergraduate or before that in high school. I was more interested in the 19th century, but I got turned on to early American history by a graduate seminar. I took the second semester of my first year of graduate school, and it was a graduate seminar on the American Revolution, and I just got really interested in the American Revolution as a result of it. Mm And what are some of the biggest challenges that you've encountered in history, whether that's writing or teaching or just anything in general? Sure. One of the challenges of working on the 18th century or the 17th century 
is that the sources are rather sparse and sometimes they're hard to find. It's not like working in the 19th or 20th century when more people were literate and more documents have survived. One of the other challenges I've discovered is that in some cases, we don't have the original documents surviving. We only have 19th century publications and 19th century editors were not as careful as modern editors are in reproducing the actual words that they saw in the documents. They didn't care that much about it. And sometimes I've discovered when I could see the original documents that they were somewhat different from the versions that are in 19th century publications. So one has to be fairly careful and be somewhat suspicious of things that appear in print that you don't have the original document for. Mm -hmm. And just to kind of follow up on that, there's been an immense amount of scholarship done on American colonial history and the American Revolution. What motivated you to focus uh, specifically on 1774 in your most recent book? Well, that's a result of the work I did on my dissertation long ago, which was on the loyalist exiles of the American Revolution, the people who left to go to England. And they left starting in 1774 and then continued throughout the war. But what I became convinced of while working on these loyalist exiles was that 1774 was the crucial year that led to changes of opinion and allegiance, not by them, but by the revolutionaries. I always make the point that people who were loyalists during the Revolutionary War maintained their loyalty. They didn't become loyalists. They remained loyalists. Revolutionaries changed. But what I became convinced of while working on the loyalists was that the other people had changed. And so I began very be very interested in why is it and how is it that other people changed and began to aim towards, if not entirely resistance, then eventual independence. Mm-hmm. And just to kind of start with sort of broad themes of the American Revolution, where did most of the sentiment lie in the colonies, whether it was like specific policies or social change? Where did most of that anger or beginnings of revolution lie? A lot of it had to do with concern about British policies. It was anger at what the British were doing and had been doing since 1765 with the Stamp Act. But it really reached a crescendo with the aftermath of the Boston Tea Party in December of 1773, when the colonists became very angry at what they thought were the coercive measures that the British were pursuing. Mm -hmm. And what drove Great Britain to institute a lot of these policies, despite it being deeply unpopular in the colonies? Well, they weren't concerned about whether it was popular in the colonies or not. They were only concerned about their own issues at home, which had to do with the fact that Britain had really bankrupt itself, winning the Seven Years' War against the French. And they'd, after all, been fighting the French for basically 100 years. And they finally defeated the French, but they spent an enormous amount of money doing it, and they needed more money. And they looked to the colonies. A lot of the British officers who had served in the colonies during the Seven Years' War realized how prosperous the colonies had become and realized that there was money to be had there. And remember, these are the people who are the sons and brothers of members of parliament. And so they brought that information back to Britain and British people were already very heavily taxed. So looking for additional sources of revenue in the run up to what became the American Revolution, that is after 1764, where they began to pass these new laws, Parliament began to put more and more financial pressure on the colonies to provide revenue for the home country. 
Mm-hmm. And one of these policies that was instituted was the coercive acts. Why did Americans consider these policies intolerable? Well, actually, I never saw the term intolerable used in 1774. That's a term that was applied later on. And I actually didn't look to see when it's first applied. So I can't answer that question. What they did not like about the coercive acts were indeed that they were coercive and that they had specific coercive measures that made the colonists very angry. For example, closing the port of Boston until the tea destroyed in the Boston Tea Party was paid for. Even colonists who were not in favor of the destruction of the tea in Boston thought that Britain was being much too heavy handed in insisting that the Boston had to pay for the destroyed tea. Another act that they very much objected to was called officially the Administration of Justice Act, but they called it the Murder Act. And basically what it provided was that if a British officer or a soldier of any sort or a colonial official had killed a colonist or had severely wounded a colonist, they could be tried in England rather than being tried in the colony. And so that, in effect, would have moved the Boston Massacre trial in 1770 to England had it happened, had it been in effect then. And the colonists called it the Murder Act because they said what this did was to give British officials basically a get-out-of-jail-free card if they killed or severely injured a colonist. So that was an act that aroused an enormous amount of opposition in the colonies, even I discovered from people who later were loyalists. And just to kind of follow up on that, sort of the military aspect of the colonies, how did the appointment of General Thomas Gage as governor of Massachusetts contribute to the revolutionary situation there? Well, Gage set up a martial law in effect in Boston and began, at first, he was quite responsive to complaints by local Bostonians about things that were happening that the troops were doing. But as time passed, he became much more heavy handed in his dealing with the Bostonians and began to not be willing to respond when they complained about what the troops were doing. So he contributed to the friction, the serious friction that had developed in Boston by the time of Lexington and Concord in April of 1775. Mm -hmm. And though not one of the coercive acts, the Quebec Act also generated a lot of opposition in America. Can you just briefly describe what this act was and why Americans came to oppose it? Yes, of course. Well, the Quebec Act was actually part of the attempt by Britain to regularize the administration of the land taken from the French in the Seven Years' War. And what it provided for was the administration of this new colony of Quebec, which did two things of importance. The first was, in effect, established the Roman Catholic Church in Quebec. And the colonists, for the most part, were militant Protestants, and they regarded this as a very bad thing, that if the British could establish the Roman Catholic Church in Quebec, they could do it in the Anglo colonies too. But the second thing it did was to extend the boundaries of the colony of Quebec all the way south to the Ohio River. And that meant it encompassed land that was claimed by both Pennsylvania and Virginia, and that people in the east part of those areas of those colonies were looking towards for future settlements. And so they did not like the fact that this was going to be, this land was going to be under the control of this administration in Quebec City, rather than basically available to them in their own colonies. 
And as you mentioned, you know, like the Boston Tea Party, for your example, what were some of the ways that colonists resisted these different policies? Well, it depended on the colony. It depended on what the issue was. There were other colonies in which tea was tossed overboard. There were colonies in which customs officers were physically attacked when they tried to enforce the customs laws. But for the most part, much of the resistance that developed over the course of the year 1774 was economic in that it began to be consumer boycotts of British goods. The theory being that the members of parliament would be responsive to the American merchants who depended, that is the merchants in London trading to America, who were the Americans thought dependent on American trade, that is financially dependent on American trade. Americans didn't have any vote for members of parliament, but they knew that the merchants in London and Bristol and other major British cities did have good contacts in parliament. And so they were hoping to place economic pressure on these merchants so that the merchants would in turn pressure parliament to repeal the laws that the Americans were not happy with. And were there disagreements within the revolutionaries about how to resist the crown, whether to try and change policies within the system or resorting to outright violence? Well, there were all kinds of disagreements about what to do. And people didn't really talk very explicitly about resorting to violence. In fact, mostly the people who were the leaders of the resistance did things like trying to tamp down violence. They spoke against mob violence in various towns when it developed. And there was some mob violence or there were attempts at at coercion that were physical coercion. But a lot of people who were the local leaders said, no, no, we shouldn't be doing that. So basically, there wasn't a lot of people who were advocating violent reactions, at least in 1774. After the war started, of course, it's very different. But in the run-up to the war, a lot of the leaders did not promote violence. They had very different arguments or very different opinions about what tactics should be pursued, but they were pretty much agreed on what the aim was. That is, the aim was to resist the British. They didn't always have a consensus about how exactly to go about doing that. And during the year of 1774, was there a lot of coordination between the different colonies about resisting the crown, or were these efforts isolated to individual cities and communities? In the beginning of the year, they were pretty much isolated. There wasn't much coordination. After the meeting of the First Continental Congress, which was when people from different colonies met each other for the first time, there began to be more correspondence and attempts at coordination, but it didn't always work. For one thing, it took letters a long time to get from one place to another. And so they didn't have instant communication. So it was very hard for them to coordinate. They did comment on what was happening elsewhere. And that's one of the things that's interesting in the wake of the First Continental Congress, which meant in September and October of 1774, you begin to see people in different colonies communicating with each other about what was going on in the other colonies. But before that, you don't see very much of that. Whatever coordination there was basically came through private correspondence and through just newspaper articles and reports of what was going on in the different colonies. And it's all after the fact. It didn't happen beforehand. In the broad scheme of the colonies, did the northern ones have different views about resisting the crown or independence than the southern colonies? Were there a lot of similarities? Can you just kind of briefly talk about that? 
I wouldn't divide it as to northern and southern colonies. I think each colony was different. For example, in South Carolina, you had a lot of support for resistance. In Georgia, Georgia was very dubious about resistance. And Georgians, in fact, did not send a representative to the First Continental Congress as a result. So it's much more individual colonies than large regional groupings. Also in the north, Massachusetts was more into resistance, for example, than Rhode Island or Connecticut. So it really was not regional. It was individual. Mm -hmm. And just to kind of wrap up the road to the revolution, did the battles of Lexington and Concord officially mark the beginning of open and armed conflict between Great Britain and the colonies? Indeed. (laughs) Yes. When anything is official, that's definitely the start of the war. Yes. There's no previous event like that. There was an instance a few weeks earlier where the British had sent a expedition to Salem to get some arms and ammunition that were stored there or that they believed were there. Turns out it was kind of false. But in any event, they went looking for some cannon and there was a confrontation, but it was entirely peaceful. It was negotiated and nothing happened. The British walked away. The Americans walked away and so forth. But the war could have started there, in effect. But yes, the start of the war did mean the death start of the war. I don't know what else to say. (laughs) (laughs) No worries. And just to kind of follow up on concluding questions, in your view, were the origins of the American Revolution primarily economic or ideological? Well, I would say that it's actually both. I don't think it's a choice of one or the other. Remember that the statement that the Americans all seem to have agreed on, no taxation without representation, has both economics and ideology in it, if you understand no without representation, meaning we want to have a voice in the body that taxes us. So in fact, I would not separate those two things. I think they're both involved. Mm -hmm. And generally, what decisions or resolutions were made by the First Continental Congress in 1774? And ultimately, how did they shape the course of the revolution? Well, one of the most important thing I think that the First Continental Congress did was to create the Continental Association, which was the agreement to boycott goods from Great Britain, both imports and then later exports to use this economic tactic that I talked about earlier. But to me, the most important part of it was not even what they did, but the what they proposed, but actually the mechanism they set up to run it, which was the election of committees in, as they said, every city, county, and town. Many areas of America had never had local elections before. It was true in New England, they'd had local elections, but in the South, many areas had never held local elections. And so what began as a result of the First Continental Congress was the creation of locally elected bodies that gradually morphed into leaders of the revolution, even though that was not really their original intent. So I think that's by far the most important result of the Continental Congress. Not anything specific, but the mechanism that they set up to enforce with the the specifics they were interested in. And how do you think folklore or some of the myths have shaped or kind of distorted our view of the lead up to the revolution? Where do you think some of those, the origin of those myths lie? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with, I mean, it is the origin of our country. And so basically people today tend to think, oh yes, I would have supported the revolution. I know in the many years that I taught a course on the history of the American Revolution, I always asked the students to think about their current political beliefs and by the end of the semester to come to the conclusion as to which side they would have supported. And usually by the end of the course, and I'd ask for a vote, at least half the students would admit they probably would have been loyalists. 
our myth is if people today were alive at the time of the revolution, they would have been avid revolutionaries. But in fact, at the time of the revolution, probably, well, the best guess is that about two-fifths of the population were avid revolutionaries, about one-fifth of the population was loyalist, and about two-fifths of the population sort of said, well, who knows, and they sort of went back and forth. And so I think that's an accurate representation of the population of the divisions at the time of the revolution. Mm -hmm. And overall, what do you think the legacy of the American Revolution is? And do you think our views of the revolution will continue to change just as time goes on? Well, surely they will change. I mean, they've been changing all along. But I do think that these days, one of the emphases, of course, is on the words of the Declaration of Independence and the ideas of equality, the equality that's in the Declaration of Independence and the equality that's in the Constitution and an emphasis on the principles more than actually the implementation, especially the implementation of the Constitution, which, of course, included the three-fifths compromise, which people today would excoriate. So I think the emphasis very much today is on the ideals of the revolution as expressed in the Declaration and to a certain extent in the Constitution rather than in the specifics of those documents. So I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Mary Beth Norton. I think it should provide a lot of insight into sort of the conditions of colonial America and the different events that spurred the revolution. I would certainly like to do another episode at some point about the revolution in general. We did one way back in season one that focused particularly on the efforts of Spain and France and other parts of the world to support the American revolution, whether it was because they outright supported it or were trying to box in Great Britain geopolitically. But again, actually examining the revolution, I think it's interesting how there was a lot of division over whether to even support the revolution. You had basically the 13 colonies split in the thirds between loyalists, neutral, and revolutionaries. And I think that makes it a lot more complex, particularly when it comes to what do you do when the side you're supporting, such as Great Britain, what do you do as a loyalist? I think there were quite a few people that ended up moving back to Great Britain after the revolution and some stayed and simply just accepted the outcome. But again, it was a really complicated time. And I think you see with the different acts that I think Great Britain didn't really fully understand the sentiment, particularly from the fact that I think they assumed that they could just kind of oppress it, the revolutionaries militarily. And even in the earliest battles at Concord, for example, it was very difficult battles for the British army. And I think it's interesting that it took a while for them to really figure out how to combat this. Never really did, I think. And really, by the time they adapted to sort of the insurgent part of it, The American army had become a lot more professional. They were better equipped from French and Spanish and Dutch supplies and all that. So again, super complicated. I don't want to go on too wide ranging of conversation. I wanted to really narrowly focus on 1774, the events that led up to it. You could do numerous, numerous episodes about the social or the economic or what the founders were thinking when they wrote the constitution, how that relates to today, but we'll save that for maybe some interviews and episodes in the future. So I hope you enjoyed episode 55 and the road to the American Revolution. If you have reached this point in the podcast, you are at the end and thank you for listening all the way through. 
As always, follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at History Does You on Instagram or Facebook to keep up with new episodes, giveaways, and the chance to ask questions of your own to our guests. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and enjoy what we do, please give us a review and share it with your friends. Thanks again.